You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't Hello, and welcome to the Christian Feminist Podcast, episode 171 on Agatha Christie's Miss Marple. Tonight we have reconvened the mystery gang. Um, we're back again, having, having talked about Sherlock Holmes back in February. I'm back again tonight. I'm Katie Grubbs. I've got Alexis Neal with me and Laurie Norris. And we're going to talk about another uh, great area of detective fiction. So we're going to introduce ourselves for any listeners who might be new. Alexis, you can go first. Hi, my name is Alexis Neal. I live in Southern Missouri with my husband, Coyle Neal, of the City of Man podcast, the uh, political podcast of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. And I spend most of my time home with my two little boys that I homeschool, uh, but I am also an elected official in our local community, so I get to do some government work as well as caring for the kids. Uh, and I'm a lawyer by training, but I'm not really stretching those muscles as much these days uh, as we're, you know, doing first grade homeschooling and whatnot. So. That's what I do. Larry, how about you? Hi, I'm Laurie. I am in Athens, Georgia, at the University of Georgia, where I have been in the English department for a staggering 15 years and was recently nominated to the University Staff Council, where I can continue my endeavors to become the world's most stridently militant labor organizer and get everyone paid something what their labor is worth. That's awesome. Thanks. Um, you're going to be doing some good. I love it. Um, I'm Katie Grubbs, and I live in Leeds, Alabama. Um, like Alexis, I spend most of my time caring for my children. I share four kids with David Grubbs of the Christian Humanist Podcast and also am a part-time college professor. I teach online for Houston Baptist University. So that's my other big uh, occupation. Um, well, we wanted to talk about Miss Marple. Um, because she represented from the beginning of her appearance on the scene when Christy first started writing her, she represented something different. Um, definitely something different from Sherlock Holmes style stories of detection, but also something very different from Christy's other f most famous detective, Hercule Poirot. And um, often her stories will turn on items of local or household or feminine knowledge in ways that are interesting. Um, some episodes that we've done before that this episode will kind of touch on or we might discuss some of the same ideas are um, episode number 48, The Feminism of Dorothy Sayers, where we talked about her detective Lord Peter Whimsey. Episode 94, where we talked about Susan Glaspell's One Act Play Trifles. Um, we had a lengthy discussion in that episode about women's knowledge in mystery fiction. And then um, much more recently, like I said, back in February, we did episode 162 on the woman of Sherlock Holmes. So we've had um, various discussions about this topic. Miss Marple is a classic, and so we're going to focus in tighter on her for tonight. Um, before we get started, I just want to talk about, give a really brief publication history of Miss Marple. 
Um, so she first appeared in 1927, December 1927, in a short story called The Tuesday Night Club, which we're going to discuss tonight. And that appeared in the Royal Magazine. And then um, several years later in 1932, that story became the first chapter in a book called The 13 Problems in the UK. Here in America, it's usually called The Tuesday Club Murders. And then in between the first appearance of that short story and it being included in a collection, Christie published the first novel featuring Miss Marple in 1930, and that is The Murder at the Vicarage. And then over the ensuing years, 12 Miss Marple novels were published throughout the um, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and even into the 70s. Um, and then also there were multiple short story collections that Christie wrote that had stories within them, not just about Miss Marple. Um, the 13 Problems is all about Miss Marple, but the other short story collections have varying uh, protagonists. And so if you want to read listeners all the Miss Marple short stories, you should get Miss Marple, the complete short stories from 1985. And that has them all collected into one volume. Um, that's just kind of a brief rundown of and 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 the whole time that she was writing Miss Marple, she was also writing um, other novels like The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. She wrote tons of Poirot novels and short stories. So Miss Marple was an interest that she uh, retained throughout her career and kind of came back to Miss Marple multiple times. Um, she also had her Miss Marple stories were adapted for uh, TV, film, and stage. And Laurie's going to talk about that for us right now. Thanks, Katie. So before I get into the adaptations that we're probably mostly familiar with, the, f the film and the TV, I do want to mention one 1949 stage production of Murder at the Vicarage because it starred um, Barbara Mullen as as Miss Marple and Barbara Mullen was only 35 years old when they cast her as the elderly aunt. And I have to say, as a very proud 42-year-old woman, how very dare you? <sighs> okay, so in film, some of the earliest uh, Marple stories um, were directed by George Pollock. He had a series of four that starred a pretty feisty margaret rutherford the first one um is you have to catch you have to catch it it's probably the best it's called murder she said and it's based on the novel 450 from paddington and M marple in this one is is an absolute spitfire and she's really kind of prickly which is an interesting take on on the character i strongly recommend it and Another adaptation that is worthy of, of note is, is a star-studded version of The Mirror Cracked, starring Angela Lansbury. It's from 1980, so this is pre-Jessica Fletcher. But it also features in its packed, insanely packed cast, Elizabeth Taylor, Rock Hudson, Tony Curtis, and Kim Novak. So that's that that's a big one. Not the best one, but it's a big one. So I think we're probably all mostly familiar with adaptations that are on television and from England. So the best one, the absolute OG, is uh, the Marple series, uh, the Miss Marple series. It aired on the BBC from 1984 to 1992 and starred the incomparable Joan Hickson, who is the best. Definitively, we all agree. You will, too. Go watch them. Christie gave um, Hickson her own seal of approval after Hickson was in the stage production of Appointment with Death back from the 40s. 
that series adapts all of the Marvel novels across its run. And I think even a couple of the short stories make their way into it. There's a more recent series that uh, ITV did in uh, started in 2004 and ran until 2013, but it was split with two different actors taking over the main role. Geraldine, Geraldine McEwen started. Julia McKenzie picked it up in 2009. Um, and this is a pretty interesting take on Marvel because the the series is rather divergent and it covers a lot of things that uh, aren't in the the books drops a bunch of care it makes a lot of changes so it's it's interesting but not my favorite at all and uh in doing some research I discovered something that if any of our listeners have encountered in the wild please comment tell me how it is but there is apparently uh, from 2004 an NHK anime that featured both Miss Marple and Poirot. And that just sounds like the greatest thing ever, right? Mm-hmm. I found it too when I was researching and my husband and I were floored and really want to watch it now. Um, thank you so much for kind of taking us through. I definitely want to put in a plug and say I also prefer Joan Hickson. Um, she's has a... Uh, ability to shift between rosy-cheeked, adorable old lady and super sharp uh, that is marked, and it's amazing. Um, Well, before we go to, Alexis is going to give us more of the textual specifics about it, but before we do, we just kind of wanted to briefly go around the horn and say when we first encountered the character of Miss Marple and what we appreciate about her. Um, So, Alexis, why don't you go first? Sure. Uh, Joan Hickson was definitely my first introduction to Marple. I remember watching her growing up. I don't really remember ever not knowing who Miss Marple was, but Miss Marple was Joan Hickson uh, for me. Um, I like her, as you both have said, I like her better than any of the other actresses, in part because it seemed believable to me that she could fade into the background and be overlooked Um you're not going to forget about Angela Lansbury. Um, you're not going to forget about some of these other actresses. Um, but but she felt believable as someone who was supposed to be easily underestimated um, or forgotten about. Um, she's not supposed to be obviously strong of will and mind, even though she is both of those things. Um, and I thought that Joan Hickson was a was a much better was much better at portraying that. Um, that 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 layer of um miss marple's appearance um so that was my my first introduction to her i i've always loved miss marple i think part of it is right right as americans we love any kind of underdog story so anytime you have uh someone who is dismissed or underestimated who's able to win that's always an appealing story especially since criminal stories often have uh that that through line of uh pride and hubris and a lot of these stories, like they assume that no one's going to figure it out. So it's always very satisfying to see that pride brought low by the humble. Um, we see something similar with Lord Peter in uh, Dorothy Sayers stories where he is uh, hiding behind a veneer of silly vanity. So that people will think he's just a fop and no one they need to worry about. And then he, he gets them. You know, that's always a very satisfying story. But um, but I think my favorite part of Miss Marple is her philosophy about uh, crime and, and human nature. Wherever there are humans, there will be crime. People are the same everywhere. Uh, It's not like cities magically make people more criminal. You just have more people and the criminality that's always there, that capacity is always there. You see it in cities, but you can see it in the country uh, just as much. 
um, because people are capable of evil everywhere. Um, And I just I love her open eyed honesty uh, and the way that she views the world that way. She's still kind. She's still gentle um, and um, and not not even super judgmental about a lot of what she sees. But she's never naive or deceived about people's capacity for evil. And I think that's a really appealing way of looking at the world, partly because it's just very real and very based in truth. But also it's reflective of, uh, in a lot of ways, a Christian attitude toward humanity. So I think to, that that makes her really unique because of her the way that she sees she sees people with the blinders off. She's just not deceived about how people are. Absolutely. Um, Laura, what about you? So um, I came to Jane Marple through the television, like I have experienced most of things in life. And much like I had to sheepishly admit back in February, I had not never read any Marple until I had to prepare for this, just like I had never read any Sherlock Holmes. So I would like to thank Chris, uh, Katie, for forcing me to experience the real thing and not just a simulacra of these things, even though I love these simulacra. Like, I love the Joan Hickson. I remember watching it as a kid and just being charmed by by it all. But I, I also, Matlock and Murder, She Wrote is is what, it's that's the chicken soup for me, right? When I'm feeling sick, I turn on old episodes of those and I instantly feel better. So Miss Marple was also kind of my uh, television penicillin. I too grew up watching Matlock in the summer um, when school was out and always loved it. That's probably what, honestly, that's probably what hooked me on mysteries that and, and reading um, Nancy Drew as a kid. I don't remember when I started reading Agatha Christie. I know it was when I was in middle school. And I kept reading it ever since then. Um, and I I always remember enjoying well, and and I was a, I've always been a fan of reading more from an author that I already enjoy. So I always loved that there's so much Agatha Christie. <laughs> if you enjoy Agatha Christie, you have so many choices. Um, and even with the individual characters, you know, if you enjoy Miss Marple, if you listeners, if you check out the 13 Problems and you enjoy it, you've got 12 novels waiting for you, and you know, any number of short stories. But I always appreciated about Miss Marple that she um, she had such a humble attitude. And but that she was able to just school everyone around her who thought that they were more worldly, thought that they knew more. And I always really appreciate the relationship between her and Sir Henry Clithering, the Scotland Yard commissioner guy who's retired, because he's the one person who might be expected to most underestimate her because he has all the official training. But in, a, in fact, he kind of turns into her biggest champion because and I think that's like a game recognizes game situation. You know, he he sees that she is amazingly adept at getting to the heart, getting to the truth of the matter, um, even though she's barely ever left her tiny town, as she always says. And so that's that was uh, a relationship I always really appreciated because so often in detective stories, the consulting detective has a very antagonistic relationship with the official police often, not always, but um, a lot of times. And so it was really interesting to see uh, a retired policeman be her greatest champion when she's the least likely private detective you would have ever heard of. And I always appreciated that. 
Um, well, Alexis is going to give us a little bit more of the textual specifics about Miss Marple, and then we're and she's also going to give a, a plot summary of the the specific story that we were going to discuss tonight. So, can you go ahead and head there, Alexis? Certainly. Uh, so, as we've said, Miss Jane Marple is an elderly white woman. Uh, in one story, I think her age is given as 75. In another, she's said to be nearly 90. Um, so it sort of varies across the stories, but she's an, an older woman. She's never married and has no children, but is possessed of an independence that allows her to live fairly comfortably, if simply, in the village of St. Mary Mead. Uh, for example, she does have a servant, uh, but the servant is usually a young girl. She's actually training to go into service. So she's not hiring someone who's already fully trained, but hiring just some young girl and, and teaching her how to be a servant. So um, so sort of on the lower end of, of the, the financial spectrum there within the women who are able to keep keep staff and uh, and live without working at that time. Uh, despite others assumption that she is sheltered, she's actually under no illusions about human nature. Uh, so one character, an actress that she knows in some of the stories, tries to claim that nothing ever happens in a village, does it? But then, of course, as the stories go on, Miss Marple is able to disabuse them of that notion um, and points out that even though people talk more about talk more openly about a lot of things in the younger generations, um, they're very innocent in other ways because they believe everybody and they don't ever really understand <laughs> what people are capable of. Uh, places and details vary, but people are the same everywhere. She says in at one point, everybody is very much alike, really, but fortunately, perhaps they don't realize it. Uh, so her trademark uh, phrase that she that she uses is always that she's talking about a local a local parallel, uh, a local analog in her village. It reminds her of something that someone did in the village, and that's often how she's able to figure out the solution. So that's Miss Marple. The story that, that we're talking about mainly tonight, or, or one of the stories that we're focusing on, the Tuesday Night Club. Um, in this story, Miss Marple is playing host to a group of friends, and over the course of the evening, they find themselves discussing unsolved mysteries. And they agree to take turns propounding some problem or other to see who of the group is best able to solve it. And they each have reasons why they think that they will be uniquely able to solve these mysteries. Uh, one is an author. That's Miss Marple's nephew, Raymond. He thinks as a writer, he'll be able to solve the, the mysteries. Another is an artist. She claims her feminine intuition and artist's eye will give her a leg up. There's a clergyman who, of course, has seen much of human nature, a solicitor. And then, as Katie alluded to, uh, the Scotland Yard retired commissioner, uh, Sir Henry. Initially, Miss Marple is actually overlooked as a possible participant, but decides to join in, saying that while she is not clever herself, she uh, has lived all these years in St. Mary Mead, and that does give one an insight into human nature. So uh, the Tuesday Night Club is the first of several problems that this group discusses and, and, so and tries to solve. Uh, Sir Henry is, in fact, the one who gives this first mystery. In this mystery, three people, a husband, his wife, and her companion, sit down to supper together, and their supper is tinned lobster, salad, trifle, bread, and cheese. All three are taken ill, and a doctor is summoned. Two of the people recover. The third, that is the wife, dies. Death is assumed to be food poisoning from probably the tinned lobster. The night before the incident, the husband had stayed at a hotel and a maid there had noticed some suspicious phrases written on the blotting pad. Uh, things about being entirely dependent on his wife, her death, and then the phrase hundreds and thousands. This gossip uh, ends up spreading around the community where the death occurred and where the husband was known to have paid a good deal of attention to the daughter of the local doctor who attended his wife before she died. 
Eventually, the gossip rises to such a level that the body is exhumed and the autopsy ends up revealing arsenic poisoning. The husband is suspected, but no one can figure out how he could have done it. Uh, the maid insists that the three shared the meal and had all the same stuff. Um, later in the evening, the husband requested a bowl of corn flour, which is apparently some kind of gruel for his wife because she wasn't feeling well, but she had never drunk it. And in fact, the companion, uh, who was on a diet at the time and was quite hungry, actually drank the cornmeal instead. Um, so that's the mystery. Each of the Tuesday Night Club members offers a solution and all but Miss Marple are mistaken. Miss Marple is reminded of a similar situation in the village involving a man of a similar type, his marital unfaithfulness, specifically with the housemaid. So she has concluded that the husband seduced the housemaid, persuaded her to kill the wife, uh, that the poison was in the sprinkles on the trifle. That is the, the nonpareils or they're called hundreds and thousands in the, the UK, the little sprinkles that are round, not oblong. Um, which the husband would easily be able to scrape off of his portion of trifle and which the companion would not have eaten because she was on a diet and not doing sweets. Uh, the group is astonished to hear that Miss Marple's solution is in fact the correct one. And in a rather sad epilogue to the story, we find that the husband actually abandoned the housemaid who was pregnant. Her, her baby died during childbirth and then the housemaid eventually also died herself and, and confessed to, uh, to the murder. Thanks. Um, it's a really interesting story because it's it's typical of the 13 problems, at least because Miss Marple gets, you know, underestimated at the beginning and then shocks everyone at the end. It also has some kind of typical flourishes that you see at the time and also later in mystery fiction with things like multiple people being taken ill and something that looks natural, but then it turns out to have been, you know, poison. Um, so to kind of talk through this specific story just a little bit um and you i mean referencing this not just this story if you want to mention other miss marple stories or things but let's just talk for a minute even though it seems pretty obvious let's talk about why we think everybody in the stories seems to underestimate miss marple is it just because they think she's just unworldly because she's never left the village or is there more going on we have to acknowledge the elephant in the room that is an old one woman two who doesn't leave her own village three so she is as invisible as most western societies could make a person a white a white person with that much independent wealth uh she can be completely ignored by people who think that they are worldly and who value worldliness above above all else. And that's definitely uh, the, something you can use to describe several of the characters in, in this store, in this collection. But I think it's really important to, to acknowledge that Jane, as an old woman, is an invisible an invisible member of society she's people who are that elderly are ignored they're shuffled off they go go sit in your your cozy chair while the rest of us live important lives and you're a woman so you haven't you haven't even made children what good are you for anybody pshaw sit there with your knitting so she she definitely gets ignored and overlooked because of those two big giant flashing glaring issues 
What do you think, Alexis? Um, I think it's really interesting to sort of think about Miss Marple in comparison to Lord Peter's Cattery and the the Dorothy Sayers books. So in those books, Lord Peter has uh, realizes that there's this entire class of women who are easily overlooked um, and that are in a great position to go out and collect information for him. They can work in offices as typists. They can uh, sit around in tea shops and, and listen and gossip and get all kinds of information that he cannot get as part of the landed gentry. Um, and he makes use of them as investigators. Miss Marple, especially in the short stories, is not often the investigator who's going around and doing things. Um, and, and she's definitely presented as sort of a, a one in a million. The idea is not that all women like Miss Marple can do what she does, but she does have a similar philosophy. Um, there's a, a, an, uh, in A Christmas Tragedy, she says, what my nephew calls superfluous women have a lot of time on their hands and their chief interest is people. And so you see they get to be what my, one might call experts. So I think there's some interesting overlap there. Again, she, unlike the Cattery ladies, where it's a whole class of people who all can be put to, to good use because they share these skills, she seems to be espousing that idea in, in the quote, but she, she actually is very unique. And, and her, her unique skill is that she is able to, she is interested in people and she has time on her hands, but she is able to really pay attention and then extrapolate from what she sees to what she's not familiar with. So she can say, I've seen it here and I can reason from that to what someone would do in other circumstances in other places because the people are the same and the heart issues are the same. Um, you know, the, this thread of a dis, how people behave to be dishonest or how people behave to be unfaithful in their relationships, um, jealousy, all these different things. She recognizes those lines um, and can and can extrapolate. So she's got some unique abilities there. But I think it's interesting to think about, would she still be Miss Marple if you changed any of those pieces? Um, I could envision a similar series with a doddering old man who uh, was similarly overlooked um, because I think Laurie's right. A lot of it has to do with the dismissal of people who are older. Um, their knowledge is being tied to a time in the past and the the constant idea of the superiority of the present where we're much more up to date now. Their knowledge, their worldview is based in the past and therefore wrong. So I think you could have a similar, not quite as effective story, but a similar story with a male older protagonist. I don't know if you could have the same effect with a younger female protagonist. I think age is a really central part of why she's able to be so invisible when she wants to be and is so often overlooked um, and has so much access because people forget about her. So I think age is even even possibly a bigger piece of it than gender, but gender also allows her access to a lot of information that other people don't have. I would agree with that. And I think specifically thinking about age, it's not just that she's an old lady, though we still resonate with that. I mean, I think that there's still that prejudice is still operating now, but particularly the time when when Miss Marple came on the scene, you know, her, the youngsters around her, Raymond and Joyce and, you know, these other young people who were seeing themselves as as very modern, like with a capital M, um, and they see her as Victorian. Right. You know, so she's not just older than they are, but she's representing a very specific idea of a specific previous time period that was thought of as kind of uptight and, you know, prim, proper, you know, she's, um, and so he's expecting her to be innocent and otherworldly and not to have thought about the hard or scary things of life, um, you know, because she's this kind of um, remnant of a Victorian era, you know, and it's, it's interesting to see 
that, you know, I mean, you know, then the first story, the story we read for tonight, there's this kind of, you know, not lengthy, but I mean, a pretty detailed description of what she's wearing, you know, that she's wearing an old fashioned black dress and she has like a little black lace thing on her head and her, the way that her clothes are described, she's dressed very old fashioned. You know, she's not the old lady that you see at the mall who's wearing like up to the minute fashions, you know. She's not coastal grandma, right? She's, you know, a little Victorian old lady and she's knitting something white and fleecy and all this kinds of things. So she's um, she's representing a specific earlier time that they would underestimate because they saw it as being a time when people weren't worldly because they didn't talk openly about things like you said, Alexis, you know, you quoted that bit where he said she said they think that they're worldly because they're just willing to talk about this stuff. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're worldly on the inside or that you're street smart or worldly wise or have any, you know, that you really have much um, knowledge of life. Really, you're just more willing to, to talk noisily about things that are hard or bad or scandalous or whatever. And I think that's interesting. I also do think that she even if a lot of the things that, you know, there are things in these stories that we would call women's knowledge. In this case, in this story, it's this this idea of women would know about dieting you know, or banting, as it's called in the story, which when I first read the story, when I was a much younger person, I had no idea what that meant the first time I read it. And I basically kind of had to figure it out from context clues because I had never heard that word being American. I didn't know what banting was. But um but a lot of these other stories, it's stuff that Alexis, you pointed out before, is more just local person knowledge or person who is in charge of their own home knowledge, you know, um, things to do with uh, gardens or cooking or things like that. But I do think that there are some things that are more specifically feminized. And I think she's, she, she kind of thinks, particularly, I think, the, the dynamics between women um, that she sometimes noticed. I was looking back through um, the 13 problems and I think I was looking at the herb of death, but somewhere in that, in that story, she, she just, you know, the men are kind of sputtering and are like, wait, but hold on. Like, why would you think it would be this young woman? And she, she kind of says just very complacently, oh, gentlemen never see through those things. Like they never get it. Like they, you know, like that they're taken in by, you know, a young, lovely woman. And I just think that's hilarious. You know, like she, you know, she, she has these, this insight into women of all ages because she's been a young woman and she's been around many young women, women. And she, you know, she sees through the artifice um, in a way that's, uh, it, it is because she's a woman, not, you know, so I do think that, that gender is a part of it, but I, I would agree with you guys that age is a, is perhaps a bigger piece. Um, and I think that Christy was interested in that because you see her, right in, in her later Poirot stuff and in her later Miss Marple stuff, you see both of them negotiating the the bodily demands of age, the the way with Poirot, it's it's him being increasingly sensitive to the fact that nobody really knows who he is. He's thought of as part of a bygone time. He's passe. You know, with Miss Marple, you see her trying to ditch the companion that her relatives have insisted she have because she has to walk with a cane and she's delicate now. And she feels like that her independence is being encroached on. So I do think that Christy was very interested in age and, and you know, how that works for a detective. Um, let's talk about Poirot for a minute um, because he's the other big name detective not that christy didn't write about anybody else doing detection she did but it's basically it's marple and poirot they're the big names for agatha christie fans so what how does she compare to poirot laurie you, you you mentioned before that you thought they were both outsiders how how, do, how is that true about both of them yeah i think that they each offer a a friction with the story that england wants to tell itself about itself 
Poirot is not the kind of man that English men are supposed to be. I mean, one, he's Belgian. Um, but he is more comfortably a fet than any uh, proper Englishman would admit to be. And Jane is so, so confident in herself that she doesn't need affirmations from others. She doesn't need someone to tell her that she's great because she's she knows she has all of this knowledge and this ability and she just casually and quietly goes about her business. Um, but because she is an old woman who is, is stuck in a in a fading version of or at least a, appears to be stuck in a fading version of of England, you know, the empire is it, the sun is beginning to set on it. And if she is a Victorian ha- hangover, then that makes her a little bit uncomfortable for the the typical English person, I guess. There's a word I'm trying to get at, but I can't quite grasp it. Um, I need a world-renowned detective to, to, to figure out what this word is. Um, but I find they're both outside of what English society wants it wants to see itself as, and that affords them each a really great perspective uh, to be objective about what is actually going on with people. They they're not bound by the myths and stories and fat and like just lies that people in these stories are telling themselves in order to craft their own personal narratives. Both. Uh, Poirot and Marple can see through that that artifice because they are not bound up in it in the in, in the same way that like Raymond and Joyce are. What do you think, Alexis? I think there's some interesting points of similarity and some interesting points that might seem like contrast, but I'm not always entirely sure that they are. So both of them are alone in the world after a fashion. They're both unmarried, have no children. Um, Miss Marple has a very clearly established sense of place and belonging. She lives in St. Mary Mead and has always lived there. Poirot, because he is Belgian and had to flee to England because of the war, is in some sense unmoored and lacking in a place to be he has an apartment that he loves and he likes to be in in the city as opposed to he prefers the city to the country but he doesn't really have a place that he belongs because he's not able to be in in belgium where, where he came from so it makes a lot of sense that he's flitting about to all these different places for his mysteries and it makes a certain amount of sense that he is internationally renowned because he himself is international and has been moved from one country to another she, uh, Miss Marple, has some renown, but hers is a more local renown. And while she's certainly not, you know, famous, there are people who seek her out and want her opinion and her guidance in cases, like Sir Henry or some of the other people in the area, whether it's law enforcement or whether it's actually just women, neighbors, or family members who seek her out when they're facing a situation. Um, so they are both sought out some of the time. Uh, They both have a philosophy that's rooted really in psychology or the the human, the the human actor as as the real root of the mystery. Um, uh, Miss Marple um, is always thinking about how the people that that she knows in her village behave and what does that tell her about what other people behave. Um, 
And Poirot is always talking about uh, his little gray cells and psychology that he doesn't need to run and find out. He can just sit and think about how people are and their psychology. And that's that's how he solves the crime. So it's a very people centric way of solving the crime. Um, And then I think they're also kind of united by the fact that Miss Marple has access to these kinds of knowledge by virtue of being a woman by virtue of training the servant class. So she has a lot of access to um, some of the working class knowledge, lived in a village where there's all these different classes sort of within the village. Poirot doesn't have those same things, but he has the attitude that no knowledge is beneath him. So he would still pay attention to feminine knowledge or women's knowledge or uh, details involving the servant class because all knowledge is important. None of it, it, it should be dismissed. So in that sense, I think they both have that openness to observe and to notice and not to dismiss anything uh, or rule anything out as, as being sort of beneath what's important. Um, and that, that for both of them, people are people, whatever their class. So even though Poirot is doing these big mysteries, he's still thinking about how the servants feel and what they might have done and what their motivations would be and not just dismissing them out of hand. Yeah, I really, really like that a lot. And I think that that close focus on people can contrast a lot with somebody like Holmes who who absolutely knows about people, but, you know, that kind of um focus that in in stories like the home stories that's always on like physical evidence clues you know uh, types of ash and footprints and you know nod marks on a cane and you know all that kind of stuff um that there is there's there's absolutely psychology bound up in those stories but so often the vital clue is something to do with um something physical a physical clue and not with how a person is acting um and i think that that is something that poro and and Miss Marple both share. And um, I think I, I, I think that Poirot does have some, um, I think that you're right that he just notices everything. Now, sometimes that does come across as, you know, feeling very like something that we might in a different detective go, oh, well, that's women's knowledge. Like the time that he uses um, a, an assortment of fancy silk stockings to figure out that a girl's a thief. Um, he asks for her opinion on the stockings and then says he's not sure how many are on the table. And then he leaves her alone with them and says, oh, just pick some that I can give to my niece. And then she, of course, she steals a couple. Um, and that's the kind of thing that feels more explicitly something that a woman would know. But I think that you're right, Alexis. I think that that the fact that he has this knowledge is stemming from his kind of um, unrestricted interest in all people. And um, and that is also, by the way, the 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 intense interest Miss Marple and Poirot both have in all people is also a big uh, contrast with Sherlock Holmes, because in um, in the Sherlock Holmes stories, he makes a point of saying that there are whole areas of knowledge that he has just not bothered to ever learn because he just doesn't think it's worth it, which, you know, is really interesting to read. Um, And he's not talking about necessarily about psychology or people. He's talking about facts. But I do think that's interesting having from the beginning of his um, entry, entree into literature that he's saying there are things that I think are not worth knowing and so I haven't even bothered with them um, and then to look at like Poirot and Miss Marple and um, who you know Miss Marple especially has wide areas of life she doesn't know about just because she hasn't been a part of it but um, every person that her life has touched she appears to have encyclopedic knowledge of um, and I do think that 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 type of attention 
and especially in an old lady does might feel very true to life for many readers. Um, you know, I know it makes me think of my mom who um, is not Miss Marple's age, but who is the kind of person who talks to every person we um, who checks us out in a store and at, might absolutely remember details about that person's life later that that person told them, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it makes me think of old Southern ladies a little bit. Um, well, let's um, let's kind of finish this little section um, kind of looking forward. What influence do you think, and then we'll move on to passing on, what influence do you think Miss Marple has kind of continued to have on the mystery genre since um, she appeared on the scene? How do we see the kind of ghost of Miss Marple hanging around today? I mean, she's, she's haunting everywhere because you just have so much of that comforting mystery like there's there's some really creepy stories that that miss marple is a part of but there's also just a warm blanket kind of feeling about reading a lot of this so that tea cozy mystery that is really appealing you got your your midsummer murders you've got your rosemary and thyme who are amazing shout out to any gardener right and then you even have Jane, the less like approachable, soft around the edges kind of of detective. You have the the invisible woman. You have the the age and the gender issues that come up in in darker stuff, especially in England, like in Vera or Prime Suspect. Though let's all pretend that. Helen Mirren isn't just impossibly glamorous as she's as she's in that that show. Um, yeah, right. I think I think Miss Marple is a shadow that looms large over all English, specifically uh, adaptations and mysteries. I can't really speak to a lot of the literature stuff because, like I've said before, my world is 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 a screen. Um, but I I do wonder about her her influence on more American stuff and if whether or not our interpretation of that tea cozy mystery kind of faded away after Jessica Fletcher hung up her uh, giant magnifying glass, but maybe it's still there in, in stuff like USA's old blue sky shows like psych that just a, a charming kind of sense of of small towns can be real weird places, and if you pay attention, you'll you'll notice a lot of interesting stuff. Yeah, I think um, so. It's not it's not an American series, but one of the ones that comes to mind for me is still a BBC series, but set in uh, in Africa, and that's the uh, television adaptation of Alexander McCall Smith's Number One Ladies Detective Agency. Uh, which was just a single season. It's like eight episodes or something. And it's phenomenal. It's really, really well done. Um, but in that series, you have a female detective in Botswana. She's not old, but she is similarly coded as harmless by virtue of being fat, a fat woman, a single divorced woman, um, overweight and and the only lady detective like in Botswana. Um, and so you've got some of the similarities there with her being often underestimated. Uh, another similarity, Katie, you've talked in the past about um, 
Miss Marple's focus on types of people, recognizing the type of person someone is and being able to decide, uh, oh, well, this is the type of person who would cheat on his wife and then kill her or whatever. Um, I think that uh, Precious Ramotswe in in the number one ladies detective series, she does a lot of that. Um, And that's I'd love to do an episode on that because it, it has a lot to say about what men are like and what different kinds of men are like and what women are like based on these ideas of types. Um, some on the American side, I don't know how much you have the unlikely detective before Marple and, and Poirot too, because people underestimate Poirot too, despite his reputation, they still think he's mistaken, you know, in individual cases on the American side, you've got detectives like Columbo who are constantly being underestimated by the people that he is, uh, investigating, um, and he talks a lot about his wife and he has a lot of, you know, and another thing or one more question. Um, so some of the similar kinds of foibles to it reminds me of one time in the village or or things like that. Um, obviously not an older woman detective, but someone who is um, by virtue partly of his class. He's often, you know, investigating um, the rich and famous and he is of a lower um, economic class. And so he's often um, um, underestimated as a result of that. Um Laurie's already mentioned, I think you both have mentioned Matlock. I don't know if diagnosis murder would fit into that trend of having an older detective because I, because of his, of uh, the detective's role as being a, a doctor, a medical examiner, he's, I think, got a little bit more maybe likely to be correct, he's not, not underestimated as much. Um, another series that, that has, has been done, I guess, some in television, although it's more in, in, um, in literature, Rex Stout's Nero Wolf. Um, Often that the near wolf is often spoken of in connection with Sherlock Holmes because there's a genius detective and a sidekick narrator. Uh, but there actually are some points of commonality with Christie's work. The morbidly obese wolf doesn't really ever go anywhere, but he relies on people to bring facts to him for him to sit and think and solve the crime. Uh, this is something that we see um Marple doing a lot where, you know, sometimes she's out and about in the community, but a lot of times she's just sitting and someone's telling her a story and she's solving the mystery. She's not always going and getting the facts. And even Poirot doesn't always go and get the facts. People bring the facts to him. He says he thinks he solves it. Um, And similarly, Nero Wolf is sometimes um, underestimated because of he's just this giant fat man who sits in his office. People don't think he can solve the problem. And then, of course, he does. And then one other um, work that I wanted to mention that I think has a lot of connective tissue with with Christie and with Marple is the film Gosford Park, Robert Altman's film. Um, in that story, a female servant is solving the crime that is inscrutable to official police and the people who live upstairs. So this this is a Julian Fellows um, uh, work. And so it has a lot of the upstairs, downstairs tension. And instead of the local versus the cosmopolitan bias or the foreign bias that we might see in um in Poirot the police have a dismissive attitude to the downstairs folk their motivations don't matter their opinions don't matter and as a result they are blinded to the true solution and the the downstairs the the female servant who actually is down in the weeds of that knowledge um, is able to figure out what happened um, because she doesn't just dismiss that as as irrelevant downstairs stuff so you still have that unlikely detective thread and the different kinds of knowledge Absolutely. Um, I think, Laurie, I think you are right that you see it a little bit in some of those kind of blue sky series. Um, I think a little bit in psych because you see um, Sean's a person who has 
he's the kind of person who's lived all over the place, been perpetually in a, a financially precarious position and by choice. I mean, you know, but it gives him this kind of insight to um, all different kinds of people that we might not necessarily the viewer might not necessarily think worthy of attention. You know, people who work um you know, in background jobs or, you know, he's like worked all kinds of places at like, he's driven the Wienermobile and he's worked at a, you know, he's worked at a circus and he's worked at the theme park and, you know, and he has all of these kind of experiences. Um, he knows what it's like to be evicted, you know, like, so he has this kind of, to some degree, specialized knowledge. Um, but I think you see it even more with the kind of underestimating a person with something like Monk, which, I mean, Monk used to work with the police. And then in his case, he has this inciting incident that completely, incapacitates him in some important ways and changes his personality to make him a person that nobody thinks can do anything right and he obviously still is possessed of his enormous intellect and he's able to figure out um figure things out often because of small details um and in his case it's driven by ocd that he notices everything um and another place that i think you see it a little bit but it's very disparate and it's spread across across characters is in something like death in paradise which is one of my absolute favorite series it's a british series british slash french series i guess you could say um but in that show you have multiple different characters who partake a little bit of that Miss Marple essence. So you have some older characters, um, people who in an American series might not necessarily, you know, might be completely tangential characters. Somebody like the commissioner wouldn't be given the same um, story weight or, um, you know, you kind of have some, or somebody like Catherine who's owns the local bar and then she becomes the mayor. Um, in fact, on that series, which is such an ensemble series that frequently, people are changing all the time and the cast changes from season to season every season. But the, the characters who are older are the ones who've been the constant ones the whole time. Um, but then you also have, um, so you have characters who you might not expect to play a large role, but the detectives on that show, they're all, I mean, you know, so far they've all been white men, <laughs> the detective inspectors, but they're all there in the Caribbean solving mysteries instead of back home in England, because something has happened that's made them into the kind of person that people don't necessarily want around or don't think are worth much, um, you know, and that's interesting. You know, um, Neville, the most recent one is like super sickly and allergic to everything and the kind of person who never wants to go out and have fun because what if he gets hurt, you know, and so it's kind of affected his whole personality. And so he's an unlikely person. You would not expect him to be, have this intense perception, this intense ability to, to solve things. Um, but also on that show, you have a bit of Miss Marple because you have some um, characters who have um, who are appreciated for their knowledge of people and the person I think of the most with that is somebody like Darlene who starts out seasons ago as kind of a love interest for Dwayne who's the older policeman and she's just kind of his fling of the week and then now and you know in the most recent season she's become a main character and has a job at the police station and she's been given this job by the commissioner because he says to her you understand people and you care about people and so she's a kind of middle-aged lady who, um, you know, has lived in the community forever. And she's the kind of person who, instead of just taking down the witness's statement, will make a connection with them or tell, you know, tell them how she knows their family or whatever. And I think that she feels like a slightly younger Miss Marple type, a person who, um, whose main value for in terms of crime lies in her ability to make connections and remember things about people. Um, well, let's, uh, before we move on to passing on, just really quick, does anybody else have anything else they want to say about Miss Marple that they haven't already said? I actually had one more, yeah, one more ahead. 
theme I just wanted to mention briefly. Um, we've talked some about how um, whether or not there's any women's knowledge that goes in how much women's knowledge there is behind Miss Marple's stories. And I think what's a really interesting recurring theme that, that relates more to gender is uh, the idea of criminals taking advantage of knowing that they are, can go unnoticed for gender-based, age-based, or class-based reasons. So people in the servant class or middle-aged women who will switch clothes or use clothing or makeup to mislead other people. I think I counted six stories in the collection that, that involved this, whether it was switching a body or trying to adjust the time of death by, by masquerading as the victim or whatever. Um, Miss Marple is overlooked Um and so she seems like maybe that would enable her to notice that other people might also be there might be assumptions about who someone is or or that they could get away with things because no one is noticing that one old lady looks much like another or one chambermaid looks much like another or whatever. So that idea of invisibility and taking advantage of knowing that others are not paying attention to you because you don't matter um, because you're irrelevant and, and actually using that as a as a way to get away with crime. And she's just she's on it because she's also one of those people. Absolutely. Um, well, let's let's do our passing on. Um, we've already mentioned a whole lot of other things, listeners, that you might want to check out just because we've talked about so many different kind of mystery series. But we want to give uh, specific recommendations like we always do. So, Laurie, what are you recommending tonight? I am taking this opportunity to proselytize for my favorite living director, Mr. Director Bong Joon-ho, and his brilliant 2009 film Mother, Madio, is about a mother who sets off to prove her son's innocence when he is wrongly accused of a heinous crime. It is not cozy. It is not violent. Well, it's it's psychologically violent and it's weird in the way that everything that Bong Joon-ho does is is weird but it's also exquisitely beautiful so it's got a a relationship to old woman detective misunderstood and ignored by society but from a very Korean lens and I I could not recommend it higher more highly to anybody go watch it now stop what you're doing watch mother right now that's high praise indeed. Uh, Alexis, what about you? What are you recommending? I am recommending Agatha Christie's autobiography. It's called Agatha Christie, an autobiography. Um, she's a great writer. Um, we've, there's a reason we read all her stories, and her autobiography is really, really well written. And it's fascinating to hear from her about her experiences and some of why she decided to write Hercule Poirot or Miss Marple or, or some of that. So it's just, it's a really, really great read and, and a great insight into an amazing author. Thank you so much. I'm also giving an Agatha Christie recommendation. Um, what I'm recommending, we talked a lot about Poirot, we've talked about Miss Marple. What I'm recommending is Agatha Christie's novel, Death Comes as the End, which is one that I never read. And so the last year, because we randomly found it at a, a secondhand bookstore, um, it stars none of her recurring detectives. It was written in 1944, and it is set in ancient Egypt. Um, and it's fascinating. Um, we were talking about types, right? So it's a story that involves many of the types of people we might be used to seeing in other Agatha Christie stories. Um, jealous younger wives. Um, you know, feuding lovers, all the kinds of things you're used to, but everything is 
couched in this ancient ancient Egyptian setting and it's tied up with ancient Egyptian religion and with the inundation and all of these kinds of things. Um, and so it's basically it's it's kind of like her style of writing a mystery, but it's an it's a completely alien setting. You couldn't get further. This could not be further from St. Mary Mead, and it's fascinating. I really enjoyed it. Um, so that's my recommendation is Agatha Christie's Death Comes as the End. Um, well, listeners, thank you so much for joining us for this discussion of, once again, of mystery fiction. And um, hopefully we'll be able to get back in the future to even more fun stuff. Um, talking through some more mystery fiction uh thanks to alexis and Laurie for joining me this evening and thank you listeners for listening to the christian feminist podcast we always love to hear from you so if you have topic ideas we truly do take all of your topic ideas and we add them to a file we keep that our moderators can choose from so um if you have an idea please do send it to us because we really do save those and people have used them and we've had some uh, listener ideas become actual episodes so you can uh, you can send us your ideas or reading recommendations or anything or if you just want to get in touch you can do that at Christian Feminist Podcast at gmail.com you can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle which is at CH Radio Network and you can check out the show notes from this episode and all our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. Um, if you have in the recent past looked for older episodes, like if you try to go listeners to look for some of the older episodes we mentioned in this episode, and if you do have any trouble finding them, we have had a recent server migration um, and there have been a few glitches there just in trying to get everything for all of our shows on the network over to our new server. So if you can't find an older episode you were looking for of CFP in the recent future, just maybe give it a little bit longer before you try to go looking for that again. And hopefully that will be there ready for you when you go back to it. Um, we are a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Christian Philippic is our press liaison. For Alexis Neal and Laurie Norris, I'm Katie Grubbs. Tune in in two weeks when we're going to be talking about Roxane Gay's memoir, Hunger. Um, and until then, in Essentials Unity and Non-Essentials Liberty and in All Things Love.